Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. As our name implies, what we are here to do is, even in these troubled times, give you a reason for hope by turning our attention to uh, the foundation that will never fail you, the foundation that we can have by looking at life, uh, looking at circumstances, looking at even the events of the day from a solidly biblical point of view. That's what we're here to do each and every day, answering your questions on the Bible. So if you've got a question about a verse or two in the Bible, a book of the Bible you'd like to explore, maybe a controversial issue is uh, surrounding you, inside or outside uh, your own circle of Christian friends. A lot of controversy, I guess, today about uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, the definition of whether uh, women can occupy the role of being a senior pastor or not. If that sort of thing is on your mind or heart, we can certainly talk about that or any other question you have on your mind, because as our name implies, what we're here to do is to answer your questions on the Bible. We don't uh, try to sit around and figure out what uh, we think uh, you need to talk about. Uh, it is strictly Q&A. It's been that way ever since uh, 9-11, believe it or not, when this uh, broadcast uh, first kicked off. So if you'd like to be a part of the journey, you'd like to get your questions to us, a number of different ways to do it. Joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Uh, Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you're joining us on the internet, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. The email address will be open 24-7 to receive your questions, and if you would like, respond to them as well. However, in keeping things organized for our broadcast, both during and after, we'll be keeping an eye on it, and will always be ideal if either A, we can't uh, address your question, I guess, with the name attached to it, anonymity is required, or we if, can do that. Yeah, yeah. Or if we are, of course, unable to get to your question, if you send it to us after the broadcast, we'll keep it nice and organized and not have to get either A, lost in the mix, or risk spamming the comment section and overstaying welcomes. Speaking to comment sections, we'll have three available for you as well. Our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen. It's along the purple bar with the other names and titles. And there you can not only watch us live at our page where we are streaming, ccftucson.online.church, but also have the spelling of the email address for later use at the bottom of the screen. You also have on the right-hand side of the screen an chat room, basically, for you to utilize while we are going through the broadcast and answering other questions, we'll be able to see and engage with you there as well. If you would like to know when the broadcast is fitting into your respective time zone, maybe not listening locally, if you go to that page, we'll have a countdown to yeah. when we are next going live, and that also includes our bi-weekly Bible studies. If you're ministered to by the messages where we're teaching through the Bible Word, or I guess verse by verse, that will, of course, be included there as well. If you want to join us on social media, YouTube is a reason for 
for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe, you'll be notified of when we are going live. However, if that, for some reason that doesn't have to do with me, doesn't happen, then you can still join us on our website. We have been kicked off before and for even dumber reasons, so we want to be one step ahead of the game and make it normal for you to join us on our website because they can't ban us on our own platform. We're looking forward to engaging with you however you are able to engage with us, but note those are your options. YouTube is a reason for hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you want to join us on our website, it's calvarychristianfellowship.com, and our website, of course, our streaming service, is under the Watch Live tab. All of this, of course, can be used to send your questions to us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Right. So with all that being said, uh, why don't we take a moment and turn this uh, entire uh, production over to the hands of the Lord. We'd really love for uh, him to speak more than we would, as you're often fond of saying here, Sean. So could you pray for it? Happy to. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word among your people, and we pray that we would be in your spirit as well. You know where our hearts are, and we pray that would be where you are as well. Meet us on the basis of mercy, minister to us on the basis of grace, and once again, just let your word be what your people ultimately take away from this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And hey, before we uh, dive into questions, if you're joining us on a number of our different uh, media platforms, uh, you can uh, get involved in getting the word out about A Reason for Hope. If you're blessed by the broadcast, uh, let other people know uh, and uh, provide them a link. Uh, let them know that they can join us live, and uh, maybe you can figure out the time zone issues if they're here or even if they're overseas. Uh, it is really wonderful to uh, see how this uh, broadcast has grown by leaps and bounds in a viral manner. We don't uh, dump a lot of uh, money. In fact, we've never dumped any kind of money to promoting the broadcast on our social media platforms. It's been people like you that have shared that the broadcast has been a blessing, that have made all the difference. So uh, if you uh, want to get in on this, you feel like this is a uh, valid and uh, fruitful uh, ministry, boy, you can get on in on the eternal rewards we're going to reap. We stand before the Lord someday just by a couple of clicks on your mouse there. So uh, pass the word along and uh, let uh, your friends and your followers on whatever platform you're on uh, know about a reason for hope. We'd appreciate it. Yeah, plus I've always found internet ads are kind of cringe. If you keep getting interrupted by these things, it makes you want to avoid that program, then pursue it. Yeah, exactly. But but having said that, let's dive on in. Yes, a question from Mike on our YouTube page. who wants to know about the passage where the man asked Jesus for help and says, I believe, but help my unbelief. So how does someone believe and have unbelief at the same time? Thanks. By being honest, Mike, yeah. this is a situation where something legitimately scary for any parent would be going through. A yeah. legitimately demonic entity was afflicting this child, causing him to go into fits and seizures, and note it wasn't epilepsy referred to a demon. A spiritual authority verified this was more than just a mental yeah, issue. Yeah, let me just read it. It's found in the book of Luke, or Mark chapter 9, I should say. There's a number of different parallels to all of this. But it's interesting that this particular encounter happened after a real highlight moment in the ministry of Jesus, uh, where he took Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. We believe it's Mount Hermon. Others will say it's Mount Tabor or someplace like that. Uh, but uh, a high mountain indeed, and uh, there had an encounter uh, with Jesus being transfigured. He sh his face shone like the sun. His clothing was like lightning. Moses and Elijah show up and begin discussing with him 
uh, his uh, exodon, his exodus, his uh, suffering that he was going to uh, go through uh, in uh, Jerusalem, not uh, too many moons hence. Uh, then the uh, Spirit of the Lord, uh, the Shekinah glory of God covered the mountain, and uh, God the Father spoke, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. So coming down from the mountain, we always discover that when you come down from a mountaintop, you know, what's waiting for you? Usually a valley of some kind. And so the disciples that were left behind uh, at the foot of this mountain were in the midst of a real conflict. It says, when he came to his disciples, this is verse 14 of Mark chapter 9, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him and asked the scribes, uh, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and whatever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered and said, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when they saw them, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and, wall and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has he, this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him into both the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on him and help us. Jesus said, if you can't, I can do anything. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and he came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said, him, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, few really interesting insights going on here. As you mentioned, this wasn't a case of epilepsy, right? was directly identified not only by the Father, who could guess, but also by Jesus, who dealt with successfully the problem by addressing the real solution. And that was, of course, clarified later to his disciples through proximity to God rather than a balance of <laughs> cerebral activity. Now, so. the, the other interesting thing about this, though, is that it seems like Jesus is kind of bummed out a little exasperated at this point. I mean, he makes uh, the comment, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Uh, in response to this man saying, uh, I brought him to your disciples and they weren't able to deal with it. Why do you suppose Jesus was so bent? Well, because they had up until this point seen this problem and its solution performed by their hand many, many times. It would be like the equivalent of you looking at me and figuring out that uh, I suddenly forgot how to walk. You were there when I first learned this. You were the one who made sure I grasped this, and suddenly everything that you've been pouring into me for the last 20-something years has gone kaput. What is the matter with you? You'd be more gracious about it, but you get the point. The disciples were sent out by Jesus in pairs of twos and, again, in other group sizes as well to prepare people for his arrival, not in a apocalyptic sense, but he'd be following behind them, bound by time and space to teach at one place at a time. Right. Now, with these miracles that would verify the message, they're following the Old Testament prophets 
modem, if you will, to make sure that you trust this guy's word because God's backing it up with deeds. This is new revelation. You need new reasons to trust it, not just the old information and say, oh, well, I'm with them too. So with that said, Jesus is holding them to a standard they should be living up to. But also noting as well with the Father, he was for lack of a better term, put in a very desperate situation yeah. because coming to people who had a reputation for casting out demons in the name of this Messiah are now either discrediting him by their inability or over-exasperating the power of darkness by saying even Jesus' followers can't overcome this problem. And Jesus is like, it's the same solution. Yeah. Well, how and, much more do I have to repeat that? Yeah, and uh, you know, I think it's really interesting that at the end Jesus said this kind comes out only through fasting and prayer. Both things to per, uh, producing fellowship with the Father. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it, you know, there, there's obviously some speculations about this, Mike, but it's very interesting that Jesus had left the nine down below and taken Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him. It's entirely possible that rather than using that time that they had at the base of the mountain to seek the Lord, maybe they were, and this is not a stretch considering their behavior, uh, still in the self-seeking mode, you know, trying to figure out, well, why do Peter, James, and John get to go up there and we get left down here? Is it because uh, they're better than we are or maybe we're better than they are and uh, Jesus had to keep them on a short leash? You know, you could see the debate going on. Suffice it to say, Jesus coming back and saying, this kind comes out only through fasting and prayer, indicates to me the disciples weren't seeking the Lord intently with fasting and prayer. And we still see in later chapters that they were still in that mode. Who's going to be greatest? Yeah, and and when, you know, Jesus says that this kind only comes out fasting and prayer, some people say, oh, well, you got to fast and pray to, to cast these out. Uh, well, you, they couldn't just kind of go, oh, wow, we got a demon here. We better start fasting, I guess. How long does a fast, uh, 30 seconds, does that count for a fast or... Or, you know, what Jesus, fast. what Jesus was saying by saying fasting and prayer is the only way you're going to have power over the, uh, the darkness is by your being in fellowship with God who's in the light. Uh, if you drift from that and start relying on your own power and strength, well, demons aren't going to be very impressed with your act. So this father is caught up in the middle of all this. And you rightly pointed out, Sean, there, is, there are a few things that are a greater challenge to any parent than seeing your child struggle. Uh, you know, I, I've been with you, Sean, when you, you've uh, suffered illness, and, you know, your daughter, my, my daughter Sarah as well. And, and you know, like, like any parent would tell you, you know, when you see your children suffering, you, you do anything, you know, even say, you know, just I wish I could put it on me, uh, you know, and go through this and, and they didn't have to suffer this. Well, this guy was going through that to the nth degree. And you can see the emotions that were involved with this. And coming to Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus asked, how long has this been happening to him? Says from childhood, often he's been thrown both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Can you imagine the emotional trauma that was involved with all that. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If. You know, this guy's like, he's given up. You know, uh, I mean, all these spiritual sources, uh, all the things. And, and since this has been going on a long time, this guy's probably run the gamut. He's probably gone through all the Jewish exorcists, all the Jewish rabbis, all the Jewish synagogue leaders, all the individuals who claimed that they could do something with no results. And so we see that if you can do anything. And if we were in his shoes, we'd probably feel exactly the same way. 
But Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father cried and said with tears, this guy's just weeping, with, with tears literally means not just the you know, old uh, ironized Cody from the ad with the one little tear coming. This means he was just breaking down, sobbing over what was going on here. And he said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Now notice he calls Jesus Lord at the, the start of all this. So check for belief. Yeah, so he's got the right focus of belief, but he also realizes something. No matter how much he'd like to help his child, this whole thing is above his pay grade. And the circumstance that he's in, probably the history that he's in, Mike, uh, all these things came together and convinced him that maybe this is a hopeless situation. Maybe there is no answer for all of this, even with Jesus standing right there. And Jesus, obviously... Uh, dealt with the situation. Uh, you know, he immediately cast the demon out, and the disciples were taken aback by all of that. But I love the, the, the fact that uh, right off the top, Sean, I think you hit the nail on the head. The reason that this guy was blessed was not because he had perfect faith, but he perfectly realized that he, his faith, even the level of faith that he had, wasn't enough to solve the problem. Only God could solve this problem. And, and so when Jesus says, uh, again, uh, you know, if I can, he says, you know, I do believe, but help my unbelief. You know, if we're really honest, Mike, I think that's where we all live. Because uh, as things motor along in our lives and all of our ducks are in a row and, and we think that, that things are going good in our lives, you know, we can kind of manage that and we can throw a little prayer in the morning, throw a little prayer in the evening on it, uh, you know, and, and think we are getting through the day. But when you come up against a crisis of life like this, what it reveals is as far as trusting God, the one thing that we do probably worse than anything else ever since Adam and Eve hightailed it off to the bushes in Eden is trust, especially trusting in God, you know, and, and so this fellow honestly admits that, and Jesus answers him right at his point of uh, acknowledgement. You know, it reminds me of what 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Nowhere is this man accused of a sin, but in a sense, he acknowledges his lack of faith. And I think if we come to God and we are honest with God, uh, not putting on the fake it till you make it, uh, I'm going to keep smiling on the outside when everything on the inside feels like it's dying. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to bring it to the Lord. The Lord rewards that honesty. Anything you'd add to that? Well, just note what he had in belief. He came to Jesus, or at least his disciples, to a point, and he hadn't left. So he believed there was legitimate solution to be found in Jesus. Right. And at the same time, he couldn't deal with this problem himself, deal with the demonic and you have fellowship with the Father. You don't need Jesus physically there. Otherwise, exorcisms would have gone kaput by 33, 34 AD, right? So that is the ongoing reality. If he has unbelief, then you can point that out plainly by their circumstances and his emotional state. He doesn't have absolute magnanimity and confidence. Oh, Jesus, now that you're here, the problem's all solved. No, he's terrified at the state of his child, and rightfully so. He's literally having a mess in front of all of them. But noting the point that's being made, what is the issue? It wasn't the father, 
and his lack of faith. It was the fact that what faith he had was put in Jesus, and it resulted in him getting everything he needed and more, which notes the salvation point, Lord. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Um, Here's a question we received yesterday from Javier, and thank you for emailing it to us so we don't lose it or require reiteration of it. Uh, He wants a few topics to be clarified for him. Open theism, simple foreknowledge, divine determinism, and Molinism. Not modalism, but Molinism. Uh, He wants to know, of course, uh, which ones have merits and, uh, of course, complications, since these aren't biblical conclusions. These are theories about biblical teachings, right. not the other way around. Right. So, obviously, if people are going to hold to any position about God, it is for a reason. The question isn't whether or not they had those reasons, it's whether or not the reasons pass, I guess, further examination. Uh, Interestingly enough, in the order that you place them, they have varying degrees of success and failure, but when it comes to the first that you mentioned, that's probably the weakest. Uh, Open theism is probably in the Calvinism versus Arminianism debate, the emphasis on God's sovereignty at the expense of free will, and the emphasis on man's free will at the expense of God's sovereignty. These are generally the two ballparks that people deviate from the foundation. So open theism would be radical Arminianism, the idea that God is basically open to suggestions, to put it in the plainest of terms. He's just as surprised as we are. It's a borderline deist concept, but at least acknowledges God's role as a personal one. He's kind of involved in the processes we are, but it's essentially making God out to be just as surprised when someone gets saved as uh, anyone else would be. Wow, that is amazing. And of course, people would use biblical muster for that, but the strengths and weaknesses are what we need to note. The majority of open theism is weakness. What passages, as far as their plain interpretation are concerned, would fly in the face of this idea that God is at a distance, which again, people came up with this idea to address problems. Why is it that some people are saved and some people aren't? Why does Scripture say, you know, today is the day of salvation? Don't harden your heart and place the emphasis on man's free will. Obviously, we don't discount those. We'll even give you a few. When it comes to man's free will, again, I have a few here on hand, just for the sake of those who are listening. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 19, is a very familiar one. The crux of the conversation is, uh, I have set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that you may live. The right. exhortations to the audience, not the speaker. Uh, we can go to Joshua 24, 14 through 15, where the end of the conversation is, you choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and right. my house, not God instead of me, not right. just I happen to be lucky enough to be elect. Right. It's me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yeah. Uh, Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, and noting the same point regarding idols. We can talk about Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, and other conversations Jesus has made about the exhortation. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Addressing the audience, right. not the speaker. Right. And of course, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and the whole book of Philemon is giving Philemon the opportunity to do the right thing, rather than predetermining for him that he will do these things. Now, the emphasis on those things is, of course, excluding other passages. The Calvinist is going to make a point of emphasis, but there's other passages that note God's involved in this process. So the question is, what word are we leaving out? Two. 
<laughs> and that's where the middle of the road, where the most biblical data comes in, and that's where we would put the most emphasis, which right. supports the most biblical data. Right. Now, open theism emphasizes those Arminian passages at the total expense of every single passage that would even suggest a modem of God's sovereignty. Can you give us some? Yeah, uh, I think we could just... Uh give you uh, two scriptures here. Isaiah 46, uh, verses 9 through 10, uh, I think blows open theism out of the water. It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my good pleasure. And that falls in line with another one of Javier's examples, the simple foreknowledge, that God knows the end from the beginning, but he doesn't cause it, which again leaves some of the uh, pressure, I guess, uh, leaves rather, some of the pressure against God and saying, so does he decide from the beginning who goes to heaven or hell, like those atheistic uh, caricatures of God, just deciding, I don't like you, you go to hell, I like you, come to heaven. Why would he create you in the first place? Right. It's taking a step in the right direction, but also falling too far short, because simple foreknowledge it's too simple <laughs> right. than what Scripture makes it out to. And, and it doesn't get uh, the idea that God has a choice or a will in our salvation uh, into it. It's just he kind of knows how it's all going to shake out. Yeah, you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, you did not choose me, but I chose you that you should go and bear fruit. We can note... No Romans, one comes to me unless the Father draws him first. Yeah, no one John calls... John chapter 6. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, no one calls Jesus Lord except by the Spirit. Right. So noting salvation's impossible without God's direct involvement, simple foreknowledge is too simple. Now note, it has those verses in favor. I've called the end from the beginning in Isaiah, but it has those verses right. against it, right. which is yeah. why yeah. we would challenge it. Uh, let me go to your other examples here, Javier. You wanted to know about divine determinism. Again, now we're getting... Now it's kind of gone over to the other side of things, <laughs> which, which basically says that uh, God looks at you and says, there's something about you I don't like, you're out. Yeah, and again, that's a simplification of it, but nonetheless an accurate picture. We compare the conclusions to other plain readings of Scripture and realize that just doesn't fly given the other passages we've already mentioned, and plenty more. Yeah, if you'd uh, like to those know who would, just to be fair to them, those who would take this point of view would point to the passages on the potter and the clay. Right. You know, that God right. has the right as the potter uh, to make the clay into any... Uh, kind of vessel he so desires. And, you know, who is the uh, pot to say to the potter, what in the world are you doing? Which yeah. is a quote from Isaiah and Jeremiah. And is also quoted in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. So, yeah. noting that point, the biblical information's there, but just like with the open theism issues, it settles for too little. It's emphasizing certain scriptures, notice this, in its conclusion at the expense of others, and that's the issue. It's not a matter of whether or not the Bible says these things. That's where the argument kind of ends up butting heads. Right. If I say, well, the Bible says these things and you deny it, well, then I go back and I say, but the Bible says these things and you're denying that. The problem isn't with the information, the data, the numbers we're plugging into the equation, it's the solution. We missed a step yeah. if we got the wrong answer. Yeah. So if we're trying to reconcile the most information with the little <laughs> brains that we have, Molinism is a good attempt. It's a little bit 
more in favor of the Armenian than the Calvinistic perspective, a little more in the terms of free will as opposed to sovereignty, but it allows enough to include a system that we would say, eh, close enough. Yeah, and Molinism, it was named after a theologian named Molina who developed it. Uh, and, and what it basically states is this, God knows everything that will happen, everything that won't happen, but he also knows everything that could happen. And this middle knowledge that could happen is where the whole eternal destinies of people uh, is decided. And noting that God would have total knowledge that does fit into passages of Scripture that note complete sovereignty and free will, noting the free will determines those futures, but God's not so small that he's beyond understanding not only that those things are going to happen, but making sure he's involved enough in the process to make sure his process, his will, his determined factors will ultimately happen. We see this in most significantly the prophecies concerning Jesus. He was able to involve himself to make sure these prophecies were fulfilled. The same is inferred on our salvation as well. And noting the, uh, well, what about people who weren't saved? Why couldn't God figure out a universe where they would be saved, well, that's the fact. There isn't one. Otherwise, God no would No multiverse? No. Marvel Comics steered me wrong? Wow. <laughs> In more ways yeah. than one. Yeah. But the point being made is that, Javier, when we're talking about this issue, it's does the most biblical data get answered? While open theism and simple determinism definitely have the least going for them, the equal and opposite mistake isn't a correction. If you've ever drived and you overcorrect, that causes just as much an accident as if you did nothing. The Molinist position is, again, vitriolically opposed by those who emphasize Calvinism. It's sort of alluded to by those who take the side of the Armenians, the free will supporters, but... But they don't like it either, because it sort of implies that that God God has a determined will... As, as well. So. And once again, it has problems when we're talking about the middle knowledge that's an inference rather than a confirmate or something taken out of Scripture. There right. are things we can infer this theory into, but we didn't get the theory itself from Scripture. Yeah, and you know, really, this kind of comes down to what our position is in Calvary chapels in general uh, on this particular subject. Uh, we, uh, when it comes to the debate about free will versus predestination, you know, our response to that is, yes, we believe in the free will of man. We believe that we are given by God the opportunity to say yes or no to a relationship with him. Those scriptures that you quoted, see, I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Choose life that you may live, uh, we are told. So there is a definite choice, and people are held responsible uh, for their choices in this world. However, the Bible also tells us that God has a choice in our salvation. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And so that's a really important thing for us to remember in this uh, particular setting. So, uh, you know, the, the, the bottom line is this. Uh, Philip Schaff, the famous uh, church historian, talked about the battle between Arminianism, which is a way of looking at scriptures that emphasizes man's free will and the consequences of our choice, and Calvinism, which emphasizes God's predestining, God's sovereignty. He said, you know, when we take a look at both of these systems, it is very clear that when we look at the Bible, the God of the Bible is far more sovereign and majestic 
than he is portrayed in Arminianism, but also far more compassionate and merciful than the way he is portrayed in Calvinism. And so the, the, the truth of the matter is really somewhere in between. And the, the best way to take it, I think, is, uh, you know, we in Calvary Chapel believe in teaching through uh, the entire Word of God, chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse. And when we teach through the Bible, uh, sometimes we're going to c- come across passages that's going to make us sound like we are flaming Calvinists, uh, that we really emphasize the, uh, the predetermined nature of God and that God has a choice regarding our relationship with him, because that's what a scripture teaches. On the other side of the coin, we'll come across passages that emphasize man's free will and accountability to make the right choice in terms of receiving Jesus, and that it is a real and genuine decision that we make. And some people say, wow, you guys sound like flaming Arminians over here. Uh, but the bottom line is, if we teach the entire Word of God in balance— then we uh, come to, I think, a a more solid footing than putting our faith and trust in some kind of theological system. Uh, You know, we really need to be careful about not falling in love too much with isms. Calvinism and Arminianism uh, are great tools that can help us uh, come to a deeper understanding of certain passages and concepts that we find in the Bible. But they're not the only tools. You know, it's like the old saying, when the only uh, tool you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, we want to have all of those tools at our disposal. Uh, We want to be able to benefit, say, uh, from those who take a Reformed position or more Calvinistic position uh, when they're dealing about issues of sovereignty. We can learn a lot from them. But we can also learn a lot from individuals like John Wesley and others that really emphasize uh, the, uh, the responsibility that we have as human beings to make the right choice and say yes to a relationship with God. So rather than putting my faith in an ism, I'd rather put my faith in the Word of God. I can benefit from these isms, but ultimately I want to emphasize what the Scripture emphasizes without denying what the Scripture denies. And this is what Philip Schaff said, I think is so right on, is that both sides of this equation, Calvinism and Arminianism, are right in what they affirm, but wrong in what they deny. Uh, In other words, if I become so Arminian, I get the idea that God is just shocked and surprised whenever someone comes to know the Lord, then I'm saying something the Bible doesn't say. If on the other side of the coin, I emphasize sovereignty so much that I say to people, well, you know, there's really no need to go out and share your faith because anybody that's going to come to know the Lord, God's going to draw them anyway. So, you know, why should I even bother? Uh, You're just not part of the elect. Well, neither of those things are really biblical point of view, and so we need to make sure that whatever point of view we take on a controversial issue like this, we're taking the whole counsel of God's Word into account. So, so there <laughs> you go. Enough, that helps you out. Uh, here's a fun question from Robert, who wants to know about a particular ministry that, well, I guess I'll just mention the name, but I guess in a broader sense, uh, teaching uh, ministries that train you in how to do true biblical healings. Pray this prayer and you'll be healed and so forth. Heavy Pentecostal circles. His name's Curry Blake, following through on the uh, John G. Lake Ministries. Uh, wants to know if that's a good teacher to follow or not. Now, 
my knowledge of his ministry from firsthand experience or even in passing research is very limited, so I would encourage you to check these things. But from what I've heard of people that will, of course, challenge his claims for ministry, and again, they may be misrepresenting him, I don't know. But the two things that I would watch out for that have been leveled against him, verify this, but uh, claim supposedly that he had a vision of heaven and saw yeah. people there and so forth, yeah. that is a red flag, and I mean like like bright red flags so that the bulls in the stadium over are going to be charging through the stands to get at it. Yeah. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe it is, we have an authentic vision of heaven being given to us. 2 Corinthians 12. 12, yeah. I was close. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who had an authentic vision of heaven, and note, verified in the Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture, and he couldn't put it into words. Whenever I see someone who can't help but put it into words, then I say, you got problems. If on the other hand as well, uh, setting up a ministry that instructs you in how to enact spiritual gifts, now I'm all for building people up in godly edification for the ministry of the saints, but if on the other hand you'd say, if you do this, then God will heal. Yeah, to the point where one of the things they uh, claim is that they can put you through training where, and they, they use this term, you will become a divine healing technician. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, you know, the idea, but just to, uh, to read their, their own material, uh, they say, we believe that God is looking for a few serious, committed, and sold-out people through whom he can show himself strong. Okay. Uh, we believe that healing is only a part of the total gospel of Jesus Christ. A large part, yes, but still only a part. We believe that God has provided a total gospel with total healing for the total man, spirit, soul, and body. Okay. But then it said, we believe Jesus offered no excuse for not believing what he preached, and neither do we. We offer help and healing to anyone, anytime, for anything. We are thankful to Jesus for commissioning us to preach a gospel that works. Now, this is where it starts to get a little dicey. The sick are healed, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor, not just the rich. Our mission is to eradicate sin, sickness, and unnecessary suffering through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, I love their zeal that they have here and their desire to see the Lord move in powerful ways. We've seen the Lord move in powerful ways. We've seen healings take place uh, in uh, really spectacular and, uh, and verifiable ways in our ministry. But the, where you get into trouble here uh, is this. When you say a gospel that works, and when you say the only way you've got a gospel that works is if every time someone comes to you who's sick, you pray for them and they're healed, right? Um, that's the only time. And, and if you don't, then somehow you're not committed, you're not sold out, uh, you're not walking as an apostle in this world, you're not preaching the real gospel to people. And unfortunately, that's uh, sort of the overhang that you get from this ministry. To say that you're a technician in the sense that you can go to anyone and they talk about cancers being healed and people being raised from the dead. Okay, um, let's see some documentation about these raisings from the dead and so forth. Um, should be able to stand up under examination. Healings that we talk about, uh, they do stand up under examination. Uh, but, uh, you know, when, when they say these sort of things, uh, can God raise the dead? Yeah, sure he can, but according to his will, not according to our demands in that set of circumstances. In the book of Acts, uh, for instance, we only see 
two individuals in the entire account of the book of Acts being raised from the dead, right? Yeah, Dorcas and the guy who fell out the window. Yeah, um, Eutychus, uh, the young man. So it wasn't something that happened all the time. We also see a statement in uh, Acts 19 about the Lord doing unusual miracles through Paul. And, and when we take a look at the book of Acts, which we think is you know, still our guide and our direction as far as how the Lord would want ministry to be done, we don't see, uh, you know, like uh, 15 miracles happening every day. No, it's like 15 miracles in the whole book. Yeah. And over and a, about a 30-year period of history, that's maybe one every other year on average, and in clusters, note as well. Yeah, and, and I guess uh, what it comes down to in this set of circumstances is, you know, we're told in Mark 16 that these signs will follow those who believe. And then a number of miraculous signs are laid out there. Now, there's controversy as to this ending in Mark and so on, but we believe that it's authentic. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that if you need a miracle in ministry, you're going to have it. Uh, but you don't follow miracles. Miracles follow you, and God will respond through prayer, uh, obviously, through the laying on of hands, uh, through anointing people with oil, in a way that uh, people will experience supernatural healing. However, like any other request we bring before the Lord, when it comes to divine healing and miracles, God will answer that request in one of three ways. Yes, which we love, no, which we can learn to live with, or wait. Uh, you know, do I believe God has total healing for all of his people? Yeah, I, I believe that. I believe when I get to heaven, I'm not going to have uh, physical maladies any longer. But to demand of God in every set of circumstance, you will heal in this way because I'm a healing technician and I've gone through this. Or there was a time of unusual miracles, like uh, is described in the book of Acts, where it seemed like the Lord was manifesting uh, his power in that way. And I demand that it happens again now. I'm coming dangerously close to what? Telling God his business. You know, and, uh, you know, I do believe that the greatest uh, faith movement situation that we can get into is coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, if it be your will, we would love to see a healing here. You be glorified, not us. Uh, we're not going to demand of you. We're not going to tell you your business. Lord, you show yourself strong for your people. We commit it into your hands. And if healing is your will, that's what we want. If you can uh, be glorified, like you mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, what happened to Paul there? Well, he was, of course, put through a very interesting set of circumstances and being stoned to death outside of a city, some believe, but what, for what purpose? It was in order to understand in perspective everything that he would be going through in this life and where it was headed. But following that, right, Paul says that in order for him not to be puffed up and exalted above measure, he was given a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh to buffet him. He said three times he asked God to take it away, and God said, no, for my grace is made manifest in weakness. Now, God reserved the right, even when Paul was talking about this thorn in the flesh, which is a uh, tent stake, literally in the original language. A lot of people believe it was an affliction of the eyes that Paul had based on, upon the book of Galatians. Three times he asked God to take it away, and God said, no, I've got a deeper healing, a deeper work I'm doing in your life than just physical healing. Uh, 
Now, did Paul experience healing in his eyes at one point? Well, he was blinded on the Damascus Road, right? And then God had Ananias lay hands on him, and he was healed in that set of circumstances. In that set of circumstances, his eyes were healed. In this set of circumstances, his eyes weren't healed. What is the common denominator there? The plan and purpose of God for our lives individually, right? All right. All right. Um, question from a Denny who wants to know, in Judges chapter 20, the 11 tribes came together to fight against their brothers, the Benjamites, and they asked God both on the first and second day if they could engage their brothers in battle, and God gave them a go-ahead, but they were defeated by the Benjamites the first two days. Can you help me understand why God would say, go fight, and still let them be defeated the first two days? This came up in class today. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for the question to Denny. Pay careful attention to the situation, not only at large, but in the text as well, and the uh, changes in behavior that you notice after the first two days, because this is important. First of all, let's talk about the book as a whole. The book of Judges, is that a high mark in Israel's relationship with God historically? That would be a big no. No, and the whole book <laughs> is set on this pretext, both at the beginning and the end. There was no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes, not the marks of a godly nation, or at least not what they were supposed to be. Yes, yeah, seven uh, kind of cyclical patterns laid out in Judges, right? Yep, God would, of course, according to his covenant, the angel of the Lord said, you haven't obeyed my commandments, I brought you up out of the land and you're defiling it, I'm going to hand you over to your enemies, like I said I would if you're doing the things you're presently doing. They'd be handed over for a period of time to the people who were still either A, occupying, or even trying to conquer the land they were in the middle of, Right. and they uh, would eventually get their act together, cry out to the Lord for help, he'd raise up a judge, a literal one with power, and they would drive out the enemies. They'd get complacent, fall back into idolatry, and the and cycle would repeat itself. Yeah, seven times we see this cycle in, in Judges. At yeah. the seventh cycle before the final judge, Samuel, things got weird, and I mean like stuff that would make L.A. look Actually, yeah, it, the whole nation of Israel was like L.A. It was essentially a situation <laughs> where a priest... I laugh because I come you, north of Los Angeles, but And you know what I'm alluding yeah, to. Yeah. A priest, A, had a concubine. Do we see any problems yet? Yeah. And so local representatives from the pride community said, hey, a new priest is in town, why don't we uh, rape him to death? because that's how you greet the neighbors. And, of course, uh, since this wasn't Sodom and Gomorrah, it was near its ruins, but you catch the point of emphasis, uh, the priest said, no, I'm not into that sort of thing, but here, take my concubine. They raped her to death. He cut her into pieces and then sent her, uh, the pieces out to the nations and said, look what these awful Benjamites have done. Instead of asking, why on earth do you have a concubine? He, uh, they gathered together to address this act of evil in Israel. And why do you have a priest who's like, Plain for both sides. He was also a priest of Baal. So. Yeah, so notice this point. A very compromised spiritual authority is in a situation where he's not only being caught in the middle of his hypocrisy, but at the same time as well is on the receiving end of other Israelites who aren't living up to God as well. Right. Now, all this then taking place, what's the, uh, I guess, sticky business, if you will? Well, all the nations of Israel come together to confront a legitimate act of evil. Right. Like even people in the pride, well, most people in the pride communities today would say that is not cool. And they were asking the Lord, again, you mentioned the verse, I'll go to verse 14. It says, When the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to go to battle against the children of Israel, they asked just for the people who did the deed. Right. And the whole tribe defended them and said, no, you've got to be tolerant. Well, 
all well and good, but this is an act of war. You know the law. And so they said, they drew the sword to defend themselves. And among this, they were 700 men who were left-handed, everyone who could sling a stone and had a hair's breadth and not miss, so skilled soldiers. Now, besides Benjamin, the men, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 who drew the sword. All these were men of war. So we have a pretty disparaging number, 700 trained men. Right. And many thousands of yeah. men of war. So the children of Israel arose, went up to the house of God to inquire of God. Notice that's all it says. They went up to the house of the Lord. Were they praying? Were they fasting? Were they in his word? No. Were they considering their own relationships with God as being representatives of him in this case, as instruments of justice? No. Right. They just went up and said, when do we get to kill people? And the Lord said, okay, um, Judah first. So God gives them permission, but notice he doesn't either A, promise them victory, and their behavior is much like the priest. We got two sides of the same coin. So they lost, as you know, and they, in verse 23, went up before the Lord until evening, weeping, note this, and asked, shall I again draw near to battle against the children of Israel for my brother Benjamin? The Lord said, go up against them. Now notice, no repentance, just weeping. They're right. acknowledging something's wrong, but they're not turning to God. They're sorry the battle didn't turn out well. Yeah. And what happened? Well, it didn't work either. So it says in verse 26, the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. And verse 26, remember this, they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. They offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, what were those done for? For sin. Ah, so now they're starting to deal with their home turf. So the Lord, as of the children of Israel, inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of Israel of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? God, we're not telling you what your business is. What do you want us to do? Then God said, Go up tomorrow. Notice the promise for I shall deliver them into your hand. The battle goes the way... Prior that to that, he never promised that. He just said, Judah first, yeah. go up against them. But notice, was that in order to promise success, or was that in judgment for the things they were doing? Yeah. And that's another inference. But here's the point. Verse 36, notice what it says. Actually, let me... I think I skipped... Well, verse 35 says, The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. Yeah. Not they failed to conquer Benjamin. The Lord defeated Benjamin according right. to his word. Right. So just taking this in the fine print of the account, what were the Israelites doing? Not godly things for the whole book. When did God tell them to go up? When they were overdue for some judgment themselves. Right. And experienced yeah. it. Yeah. And when they finally experienced said judgment, started offering sacrifices again and following this trend finally got their acts together before the Lord, then God actually made them a promise of the outcome. I will deliver you. I defeated them in battle. And again, why? Not just because they had business to deal with, but the instruments of God's judgment also have to deal with their house first. It's like the pastor saying, well, I'm the pastor. I don't get judged by God. I judge other people's sin. <laughs> yeah. No, you get judged first, actually. And yeah. this is the example of that. Yeah, and, and what an important lesson for the entire nation of Israel in their dilapidated spiritual state, Adini, uh, because, uh, you know, the, it wasn't like they were the good guys and the Benjamites were the bad guys. It was all Israel 
that needed to turn to God. And so why tell them to go into this battle? Uh, because as Proverbs chapter 3 says, uh, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor let your heart detest his correction. For those whom the love, Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father of the son in whom his uh, heart delights. Uh, you know, I, I've run into people who have wandered away from God, and, uh, you know, they made a genuine commitment to Christ, but they've gone out in the world, and one huge uh, setback after another comes their way, and they can't figure it out until you say, well, maybe somebody's trying to get your attention. God will go to all kinds of lengths to wake up prodigal sons and daughters out there, including making life pretty uncomfortable. So I think that's what we're seeing in that passage. And again, Denny, I know you were the one who heard the question, and I'm sure it was a little bit more straightforward and in-depth, but let us know if that helps, and if you need us to go into more detail, just note the chapter's layout and pay attention to the lack of information as much as the information that's included and what made the third event different than the first two. And by the way, for those of you that are uh, watching this broadcast, please keep a Denny in prayer. He uh, serves as a uh, Calvary Chapel uh, Bible College uh, teacher and a discipler in uh, Nigeria in an area that is uh, largely Muslim, which, as you probably know from following the news, is a very uh, precarious place to be. Uh, we need to be continually lifting he and these uh, young men who are being raised up as pastors up uh, that God would protect them spiritually, that he would protect them physically as well as their families, and continue to uh, reach out with the love of God in that, that very challenging place. At any, we are uh, backing up in prayer uh, here in Tucson, Arizona, and we hope that all of you in the Reason for Hope audience will do the same. All right. A question from Holly, who wants to know what the Bible has to say about alcohol. In a general sense, it exists, but I'm sure that's not what you're asking. The question a lot of people have is, can Christians drink? Now, hopefully with a function esophagus and stomach very well, but the consumption of alcohol includes with it some sticky business, not just in regards to getting... I guess, uh, the calorie intake, but inebriation that follows. There are passages that say, do not be drunk with wine and such as dissipation. Ephesians 5.18, yeah. Yeah, but be filled with the Spirit. Yeah. Be so full of the Spirit it affects your behavior, not of the Spirit of liquid, but the Spirit of God. Right. Now, people will run with this and say, because something can be abused, it should be forbidden. And this is taken in other directions as well, that uh, truly godly people won't get married because so many people abuse sexuality or so many pe or, uh, people shouldn't uh, watch movies because there's bad movies out there. And, uh, and there are bad the, movies out there. Yeah, yeah. but uh, in substance, not yeah. in quality. Yeah. The point being made is this. When we see the Bible talking about something that can be abused, is there a right use of it? And where do we fit in the midst of this? Yeah, and, and, and I think it's just a question of becoming familiar with what the whole Council of Scripture has. Full disclaimer, I do not drink at all. Uh, I do not drink alcoholic beverages, but it's really more for a personal reason than anything else. Um, you know, I know of uh, three generations of alcoholism that run in my family. And when I got saved, it was uh, back during the era where I was first starting to be exposed to alcohol. And I could see that that could very easily have a hold on my life. And so uh, just knowing who I am, uh, the Lord just laid on my heart, you don't need to have this in your life. Uh, you don't need to drink to relax. You've got my peace. You don't need to drink to become more social. You have my love. Uh, you don't need to do that. And, and so, you know, I, 
uh, you know, made a decision early on that it was easier for me not to try to drink in moderation because I knew it could very easily take over my life. Uh, I just cut it out. Do I think that that applies to everybody? No, for a couple of reasons. First of all, in John chapter 2, we are told that Jesus made wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And uh, we know that that wasn't Welch's grape juice. It was vintage wine based upon the reaction of uh, the uh, people bringing it to the head of the feast. So there is a place for some people to drink alcoholic beverages. Uh, you know, in uh, the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, and verse 23, uh, Paul says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. But we have to balance that off with what Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 says. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. You know, if you find yourself in a place where you have to drink to find a semblance of peace within your life, well, you need to take a step back and say, okay, where is the Prince of Peace in my life? If you find yourself in a place where that's the only way that you can relax, if you find yourself in a place where you feel almost a compulsive desire to have this in your life, where it's kind of ruling you rather than you ruling it, you know, if you find yourself in that place where you go, oh, I can quit any time. Well, you know, some people say that quitting drinking is the easiest thing in the world. Some people quit drinking three or four times a day and then go back to it. Sounds so, like you just took a break. So my, my, uh, my two cents worth in this is that I don't want to say in a blanket sense that drinking alcoholic beverages is not for believers and that it is an out-and-out -out sin. But I will say that you need to take a good hard look at your life. And if you do have it in your life and it's affecting your life or beginning to control your life, you know, Paul said, food for the stomach and stomach for food, but I will not be ruled over anything. Uh, you can take anything like that, and if that is taking the place or uh, uh, supplanting the ministry of Jesus in your life, boy, you really need to take a step back and, uh, and think about that. And if I'm saying that and that's offending you or you're getting defensive about it, can I say something? Maybe you need to pay attention to this more than anybody else because our fallen nature doesn't like it when uh, we find ourselves going, well, maybe I need to say no to something like alcohol so I can say yes to something better, and that's a living relationship with God. Yeah, and again, there are better things to drink, not just in substance and flavor, but for health concerns as well, not yeah. just drunkenness. So yeah. take those things into consideration. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.